scripture reading today is from um, Psalms, and it's Psalms 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, and you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Becky. Okay, so, you know, sometimes I get up here and I, I, I try to tell stories uh, that, that give you a little bit of information about me as you guys still are, you know, getting to know me. But this morning, I've got to tell you uh, a story about somebody else in this room. You see, we're, we're getting close to the 10-year anniversary of, of one of the coolest events of my life. Um, and, and it's something that had nothing at all to do with me. Uh, you see, 10 years ago, uh, Beth was the, the head coach of a varsity high school volleyball team. And, uh, and, and it, it was one of those, like, uh, I won't say it's a bad news bear story, but it's, the, it, it's one of the kinds that could be a movie, right, where it was like, how did this turnaround happen? They were here, and amazingly, they got to hear, and, you know, the story of, of redemption, and it, it would be a really cool movie, but, but that was the kind of season that this volleyball team had. They, they, they were struggling, and they turned it around, and somehow ended up managing to make the playoffs, and then we were kind of like, well, that's great. That's a good season, and, and then they won their first playoff game, and we thought, well, that was really cool. I, I'm sure we're done after that. I'm saying this silently to myself. I'm not telling the kids that. But, and, and, and then they get to the next game, and, well, dadgum, they won that one too. And then they won the next one. And, then, and they just kept winning, and it was like, what is going on? This was the most unlikely of stories. And, and so we had some good, some good players, but we, we just weren't sure how that was all going to work out. Well, so we find ourselves in the state championship game. And this truly, you know, people get tired of like the David and Goliath comparisons. This was a David and Goliath kind of story. Um, our, our team was the David, and, and um, the other team was absolutely a Goliath. They had two girls on that team that went on to play at the University of Texas. So if, and if you're a volleyball fan, you know that like them in Nebraska and Wisconsin are like the biggest volleyball schools in the country. So they had some absolute monsters, and we were just about to get creamed. So... Um, anyway, I'll just give you like the quickest rundown that I know how to do of this. But, but so game comes, we start out pretty good, like feeling pretty confident. And we actually win uh, the first game. And, and so in, in this game, there was the best of five. So you had to win three game, you know, three sets out of the whole, to win the match. We win the first one and we're like, oh my goodness. And then we won the second one. And we're like, we're going to beat Goliath in a sweep. We're, I mean, we couldn't believe it. I mean, the gym was stunned. It was absolute silence. Um, well, so th- game three, the, the Goliath wakes up and creams us. And game four creams us again. 
So now we've got to go to game five, which is kind of like just the tiebreaker. And it's supposed to be a quick game to 15. And they have all the momentum. We feel like, well, now what we thought was going to happen is happening. We're starting this game. And they just start pummeling us at the beginning of that game. And it's like, well, we might as well just start the bus and get ready to go home because it's, it's over. And so Beth takes a timeout, and the girls are just like, I mean, it's like they've gotten hit with a haymaker. I mean, they're just stumbled. And, I mean, they can't even think straight. So Beth gets them calmed, calmed down a little bit, and they come out of this timeout, and they start to play again. And, and, and little by little, they just kind of start working their way back up the mountain on this thing. Um, and it just... It, then it just turns into like two heavyweights just throwing haymakers and they're just both stumbling, forms out the window. It's just who's got the guts to finish this sucker. So, I mean, it is, it's wild. So, so you're supposed to play to 15, but you got to win by two. Well, nobody can win. I mean, it's just boom, boom, back and forth, back and forth. So it's 17 to 17, roll this thing. And by the way, we're the team on the right. We're the team on the right. There's like, you know, like, I don't know, like 1,200 views of that on, on YouTube. I'm probably about 600 of them. Um, I, there, it, it still doesn't ever get old for me just to, just to kind of keep watching it. But uh, it's, it was such a cool, uh, a cool moment. Um, so, you know, these were, these were some, all of them were my students. So I, I taught at that school and Beth coached them and we, we'd known these girls. It was just such a cool, a cool thing. But I got to tell you kind of the Paul Harvey rest of the story kind of moment. And it's been 10 years, so I think like the statute of limitation is, is up. So I can tell you something behind the scenes of, of that event. So something really amazing happened not too long before, uh, before that game. So, so I wasn't there because it was a closed practice. But um, 
you got to stop that. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so, um, okay, so th- they're doing a walkthrough that day for just, just hey, here's the positions you're going to be playing, here's some of the plays we're going to be running, like just a quick kind of walkthrough, right? And so um, the, the practice is, is coming to an end, and, and Beth's like, okay, you know, let's grab the rest of the balls, let's get out of here, and that kind of a thing. There's just a couple of balls over there, and our best player— uh, is, is standing closest to it. And, and, and she says, listen, I'm a senior. I am not shagging balls, which means picking them up. I'm not shagging balls. I'm a very last practice of my life. And walks out. And the whole team is just kind of sitting there stunned, like, what it just happened, right? The, the, the whole team just kind of got deflated. And, and so, um, so the coach, uh, who I'm not mentioning, just says, well, listen, I'm a part of this team. I'm no more important or better than anybody else. I'll pick them up. And so she goes and grabs the balls and picks them up. And, and like I said, I've had, I've had several, because I know every one of these kids, all kind of say there was just this moment that we recognized, hey, we were a team, and, and, and we were going to work together no matter what. Even in the midst of this kind of crazy thing that happened, it was this kind of this revitalizing moment. It was what gelled and brought them all together before this humongous uh, humongous game. And so I've had a couple of girls tell me, even in years past, like I said, it's been 10 years, say, it was one of the biggest moments of my life. I just remember watching my coach pick up the volleyballs that, you know, the underclassmen were supposed to go get. Um, and, and they just said, look, it was a pivotal moment for our team, but it was also a life lesson, right? If, if the coach was willing to humble themselves and, and pick up the balls, then, then I'm no better than anybody else. I can do the same kind of thing. It's just one of those, those, those life lessons. And, and, and I would say humility led to unity. Uh, you know, and it's just an example that, that uh, you know, we, we still talk to a lot of these girls to this day that they've never forgotten. They've never forgotten that example of humility. And so the, the, the entire book of Philippians, as we're about to read it, uh, is set around examples. Paul had these examples in his mind, and he said, you guys all know these things. I'm going to use them as examples. Um, I want you to learn from examples. And so this morning, just like that coach of the volleyball team, uh, Jesus is going to be the example. She's laughing. She's going to murder me at home, by the way. Um, (laughs) If I'm not here next Sunday, it's because I got murdered by that coach. Um, So, but Jesus is going to set the example that we should not try to elevate ourselves, but live with humility. Okay? And so I want us to pray as we kind of prepare our hearts to, to read this, one of the, what I would call one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that we can trust. Thank you for your word that we can build our lives on. And we ask that you would uh, awaken us to it this morning. That you would use your Holy Spirit to do something in us because of your truth that would change us. We would not leave this room the same. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are now in the second chapter. We've been in this study for several weeks now. Um, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I told you just a, 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 a second ago that I think this is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible, and, and I mean it. Um, you know, all words of Scripture are important, right? So make sure you hear that. But this one is such a foundational piece, and it, it gives us such an amazing view of Jesus and, and, and who, he, who he is uh, that we ought to take special, special note of this passage. This, this passage contains what scholars call the hymn of Christ, the hymn of Christ. Uh, b- because verses 6 through 11... Uh, if, you, if you were to read them in the Greek, if you were to read them as the original readers would have read them, it, it sounds like a poem. It, it, it sound, feels like a stanza. It feels different than everything else. It's, it's something that's set apart. Uh, many many uh, experts think that, that it might be uh, a, an early Christian song that, that people had been singing to teach each other about Jesus. Maybe it was kind of this early Christian hymn and Paul used it to say, yep, this is all true, and this is what you need to know. Others think Paul probably wrote it, and it became an early Christian hymn because it was Paul's words. Um, Either way, the words have been uh, incredibly foundational to our understanding of Christianity and our understanding of of Jesus and the the, the Trinity. So so again, this is is foundational, uh, foundational stuff. So the beginning of chapter 2 feels connected, because it is, uh, to the end of chapter 1, which we talked about last week, where, where Paul talked about them standing shoulder to shoulder in unity and wor- you know, working together, and that's what they ought to be doing for the sake of the gospel and all of that. And, and so he's going to just continue that thought and to say, look, um, if you have learned anything from your relationship to Christ, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, if you've learned anything from your relationship to Christ— then your focus should be on living in unity, loving one another, and working together. So if you know anything about the Christian message, if you've learned anything about being in a relationship with Christ, then you ought to have unity, you ought to love one another, you ought to have fellowship, you ought to work together. That, that's just a, an inseparable piece of knowing Jesus is loving one another. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. Why is he telling why is he telling them this? Why is he writing this to the, the Philippian church? Because they weren't doing it. This is the same reason you would, right? They're not doing it. Um, they struggle with pride. They struggle with arrogance. They're holding grudges. They quarrel about whose idea is better. 
right? Harmony is an age-old church problem. It's not a new one. Uh, it's been going on since the very, very beginning. So, so he is addressing a church who's having some problems like every other church uh, on, on unity and working together and, and, and shan- standing shoulder to shoulder. And so he, he's going to keep on, right? Let's go to verse 4. And he says, look, I don't care about your own interests only, but think about another person as uh, more important than yourself. If, if you have an NIV Bible, you've probably learned it, and in other translations is to say better than yourselves. Consider others better than yourselves. And that's not really what Paul is getting at. It's make them the priority. It's not, oh, they're, they're better than me. It's, no, I'm going to make them the priority of, because they're more important than me. That's what he's trying to get at. Um, so caring about others, being selfless, that's, that's the point. Okay, so, so verse 5 sets up all that is to come. Uh, he says, look, have, have this mind like Christ did. And, 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 and as I told you just a minute ago, kind of the, most scholars think that, that Philippians is set, the whole thing is set around this idea of examples. Um, Paul kind of uses himself as an example in, in chapter 1 where he says, look, this is what's happened to me and why I consider it joy. And this is what's happening to me and why the, it's been good for the gospel. And, and this is what's happening to me and I want you to see all that and be inspired. Right? And he's, not, he's not speaking that in arrogance. But he's just saying, look, you know me. Use that example. Okay? And so he's going to say, partner with me in the gospel um, and, and, and recognize that it's more important, you know, because I'm willing to live on, even though I'd rather go be with Jesus. I'm willing to, to stay here uh, for the sake of the gospel, if that's what God wants for me. And so in chapter 2, he's going to kind of change examples on us. And, and he's going he's gonna to go with his main example, which has been his big example and the whole example the whole time. So we would call this little piece here the heart of the entire book. So um, the, the big idea of Philippians is the incarnation. It's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and we're going to see all of that in verses 6 through 11. And, and, and then Paul is going to build the, the whole rest of his letter kind of around this little hymn of Christ, if you will. And he's going to show, he's going to take certain phrases out of it, certain pieces out of it, and say, yeah, remember that thing I talked about? It should look like this. Remember that piece I talked about? Here's a great example of what that looks like. And, and I gave you this example already. See how Jesus did it first? That, that's kind of the whole structure of the book of Philippians. Um, and so he's going to say, look, this is how I want you to, to respond in light of Jesus and who he is and all that he's done for you in the gospel. Um, so he says, look, as a Christian, you should have the mind of Christ. Well, what did Christ do? And here we go into verse 6. And let's look at it again. Though he was in the form of God, he's talking about Jesus, he did not con- count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a very active language, very active verb that he uses there, to be grasped. So we're going to talk about that. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, the na- at, a, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So I'm going to start by telling you three really important theological truths that we learn from this passage, and then we'll get into some application. And there's, there's more than just three. I, I mean, you could create a whole theology book just by kind of picking out the, the important things of, of 6 through 11. But I want to I hit three of them that hopefully you know this is just a great reminder, uh, but they're, that are just key. They're just so essential. The first thing that we learn uh, is that Jesus is divine in verse 6, meaning Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Okay, and that's a non-negotiable. We don't, you know, compromise on that. Jesus is divine. He is God. He's in the same form, the same essence. He's God. Now, we know that from other places in Scripture too, but, but here it, it's, it, it's so laid out you know, just for us to see, and it's, and it's such an important thing that we should always remember. We never, we never compromise on that truth. He wasn't just a really good human. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as we know in other places in Scripture. He, he's the beginning and the end. He is the one who created the universe. He was with God in the beginning, as we, as we know in other places. And it says the Word was God. There, there's no doubt on that. There's no, well, we're not really sure. No. Jesus is God. And, and when I say that he, Jesus is God, I, I don't mean it as like the Father is the main God and Jesus is sort of the like the backup God. It's not like the Father is varsity and Jesus is the JV God, okay? We, we just got to make sure we have that clear in our heads. They're equal. They're the same. All God, same God, same glory, same power, same majesty. There's no differentiation there. There's no different levels. They're both God. Okay, so what was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden? Remember how they were tricked and said, you can be what? You could be like God. You can be like God if you will do this. And they all went, oh, well, yeah, let's, let's, do that. The, the, the sin that they committed, if you want to call it pride, some people call it envy, some call it idolatry, right? Instead of letting God be God, they tried to be God. So, so you can, you know, a lot of people just call it pride, envy, you know, whatever you want to call it there. That's what happened. They wanted to be like God. And notice they grasped the fruit, right? They grasped the fruit. And Paul is using that imagery on purpose. And he says, look, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't grasp at equality. One, because he already had it, but he wasn't trying to elevate himself. That wasn't his goal, right? That's not what Jesus was trying to do. But we know clearly he was God, and he was willing to do what we see as point number two. So first thing, he was God. Point number two, he was willing to humble himself and become human. Not kind of like a human, not in... In, in like a ghost who looked like a human and appeared to be, but really wasn't. Not like a fully human, right? And this blows all of our minds. He was fully God. He was fully, fully man, okay? So the earth is so far below him, we can't even compare it. Um, humans are below him, that not even worth his time, okay? How humbling, or you can even use the word humiliating. It's the same word. How humiliating that Jesus was willing to empty himself 
of his divine glory. Not of his divinity, he stayed God. But of the glory, he, he emptied himself of that. That's what scripture says. He emptied himself of that glory to come and be born. Right? And he wasn't born in a palace. You guys know all this stuff. He wasn't born to a rich family. He was born to a family of nobodies in a nobody town in the backwoods of Palestine. Right? He, he, that's, that's who he is. He was born in the lowliest of circumstances. He was born in a manger. All of this stuff. How humiliating that the guy who created this place was willing to do that. And not just that, right? Paul goes on and says, look, he did all of that. And then what? He was still willing to go further. He obeyed what the Father wanted, and he went so far as to die. Not only die, but die in the worst possible way, in the most humiliating way you ever could, which was crucifixion. Okay, so that's the second thing, right? He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to become human. Third thing theologically uh, is found in verses 9 through 11. And we can just simply say that Jesus is exalted and is going to be and continue to be exalted forever. So the glory is back. When, When Jesus shows up, when the tomb is rolled away, he appeared. Jesus is back in his glory. He, he has restored that divine glory. And everything changes at this point. So, so, you know, we think about some of the Old Testament passages of him being the suffering servant and, you know, doing all of that. That's done. He's not going to be that anymore. He will now become the triumphant king. That's who he is from now through the rest of eternity. The one who we just read about in Psalm 10, right? The one who crushes kings and, and ruins empires and, and is elevated. And, and all of that, that's about, that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. And all that he is going to do and all of his power and glory and might and all of that. That's who Jesus is now. He's no longer the suffering servant thing. He is the triumphant Jesus. And, and so when we think about the, like the book of Revelation, the one who's going to be riding in triumphant, that's Jesus. And all the earth is going to bow down before him and they're going to recognize his, uh, his authority. Whether they want to or not, they're going to bow before him and recognize his authority, recognize his power and might and glory. They might do so grudgingly, but the whole world is going to recognize who he is. And so it's kind of interesting to think about, for us, where we are in this timeline, Experts say we are now in the time where we are supposed to share in his sufferings. So the stuff we saw Jesus do when he was a man here on earth, that's what we've been called to do now. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians. Look at all the stuff that Jesus did. As an example, you're supposed to be doing the same stuff. There's a day coming, believe it or not, where we won't be like that. We won't be the suffering servants either. We will reign because Jesus reigns. We will be triumphant because he's triumphant. The problems and the things that weigh us down every day, we're not going to deal with those for eternity. Those are going away soon. But for now, we share in his sufferings so that we can share in his glory in eternity. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting thing? And it's, it's important to remember when things are the hardest. As Jesus is the example, look at what he went through and where he is now and what's, what, what is to come for us. We won't be suffering servants forever. 
Okay, so, so Paul shares this beautiful imagery and this truth about Jesus. The, the eternal God made flesh just for us. And, and there are so many, you know, implications theologically, and, and Christians have been studying this and talking about it. There's a million books out here, uh, you know, theology books about this passage. But I want you to, to kind of think about what was Paul's point? What was the focus of why he said all that he said about Jesus? Oh, it was for our theological benefit, but the main point he was getting at was, was what he said at the beginning, right? He wasn't just trying to write books or create theological camps and, and give guys in, you know, libraries something to talk about. It was about love, wasn't it? It was about humility. It was about living like Jesus, being selfless the way Jesus was. That's the point of it. Jesus was and will always be the humblest person to ever walk the earth, ever. Who will die for the sins of the world? Jesus says, I will. Who will take the blame for all the adultery and violence and gossip and prejudice and hatred? And Jesus says, blame me, I'll take it. I will take all of that. Who will die the worst death ever known to mankind? Jesus says, I will. For others, I'll take it. We see what he does for us at the cross. He humbles himself. He lowers himself for love. For love. He lowers himself for you and for me. And and so Paul says this, this type of humility should not only draw us to Christ as we are amazed and overwhelmed by his love for us, but it, it should also be our example and inspiration for life. So if, as I read this passage, I have to ask myself, and you have to ask yourself, what is it that holds us back from passionately honoring God with our time, with our talents, with our treasures? What is it that holds us back? Could it be the pride that, it, that we have stored up inside of ourselves? Could it be that I say to myself and you say to yourself, I can't give my time to God today. That's, I have more important things. I can't humble myself to that. My life's more important than, than that. I can't use my time and my talents for God. I've got to take care of myself first. I've got to take care of me. I deserve it. Uh, it is uh, fascinating. Uh, earlier this summer, uh, Beth and I got to take the middle school kids to, to Six Flags, and a, and a deep theological truth hit me as I was standing in line, you know, for like two hours for this ride, watching people cut in line and jump out of line and jump back in line, and absolute chaos. Right? You guys have done this. I th- it, it, it occurred to me, everyone in this park, all you know, fifty thousand of us think we're the only one that matters. We think we're the most important, including myself, right? I want to make sure that I get to ride the rides I want to ride. I want to make sure that my weight in line, you know, in line is short. At the expense of other people, every person in that park thinks that way. Why? Because they're humans? Because pride is our issue that we struggle with. We think we are more important. We think we're the only ones that matter or our kids matter more than those people's kids. 
right? My, as long as my kid's experience is better than their experiences, then that's fine. Right? And, and we won't say it out loud because it sounds ugly, but it's true, right? As long as m- the stuff I care about is taken care of first, that's all I'm really worried about, right? Just be in traffic and watch people. It's who we are. We, we care about ourselves more than anybody else. We think we're the, really the one that matters. So there's your, th- you notice, you know, humanity at work around you and you'll see deep theological truths. So we all think we're the most important. Every person on this planet, from, from presidents and kings and princes to the lowest in the world, we think about us all the time. We think we're the one that is the most important. And so we think our comfort is the most important thing. We think our time is the most important thing. And what God, Paul is saying is, Jesus didn't. He, I'm sure it's sure good that he didn't do that or else we would all be in trouble. But now we should live like that too because our lives aren't our own anymore. They belong to Jesus. And so I, I would say, I think pride is the poison that holds us back in most of our lives from doing what, what we could and should do for Jesus and with Jesus uh, because we think about things in the, in the wrong way. When I, when I was young, I learned a helpful acronym. Probably some of you did as well. It was JOY. You guys remember that? JOY. J stands for Jesus. O stands for others. Y stands for you. And so in terms of priority, it's Jesus, others, and then you. And I kind of like that. It's, it's helpful for me. Am I thinking about Jesus first? Am I thinking about others before myself? In my, in my priorities in my life, am I worshiping God and Jesus first? And, and then taking care of other people and then letting myself come last in terms of priority? The world tells us to do it to the opposite, right? Take care of yourself. Make sure you're okay. Go and get yours. And then afterwards, if you've got some leftovers, you can, you can share with other people. And then if you really feel like it, if it's helpful for you, then have some faith stuff, right? That can come way, 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 way at the end. God first, others second, you third. It's not a bad way to live. In fact, it's the right way to live. It's what Paul is telling us here. But guess what? It's impossible. Because we're prideful, because we're human, because we're sinners. Our sinful pride prevents us from living that kind of life. But Jesus offers a new life. A new life found only in Christ, only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Is something like this even not only imaginable but possible? Where we're living, where our lives don't matter as much as everybody else's, where, where we're living our lives for Jesus, we're giving our lives away because that it just doesn't matter anymore because Jesus is more important than any of that. And then we can live for others because we see the example that Jesus set for us the way he did it. And, and so I would encourage you that the step in all of this. It doesn't come natural. I don't even want to talk like this because I like to do what I want to do. But to ask Jesus, hey, can you even help me want something different than what I have? Want to think a different way than I do? God, can you help me put my pride away? I don't even want to do that, but, but I know that you can help me with that. Can you help me want to? That, that's the starting point in this. Can you, God, help me want to put selfishness to death? Jesus first, others second, we're third. Because he was the ultimate example. It's what he did. It's the way he loved us. 
And, and now if, if we belong to him, our lives can, can look the same. And that's a life of joy. Jesus, others, you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example you set in Jesus. You could have judged us and sentenced us and condemned us all in our sin and left it, left it alone. But you loved us. You didn't need us, but you loved us. And so you made a way. And that way is like nothing any human could have conceived of because it was selfless. God, remind us who Jesus is. That the creator of the universe cared enough for us to come down, live a life of humiliation for our sake, and not only that, died in the most humiliating way to take on our sin. So let us worship you as the conquering, conquering Savior, the triumphant King, because of all that you have done. God, let, let us live our lives for your glory knowing that we belong to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.